Two weeks ago, we studied the first nine plagues of Egypt. Why plagues? That was a question we asked. Why would God not only allow plagues, but actually bring about or cause the plagues? The plagues devastated the entire land of Egypt economically. And the question was, why? Why? Well, we saw five reasons for the plagues. First of all, is to know God's authority. He's in charge. Know God's authority. Secondly, to know God's involvement in his creation. He's involved in his creation. Thirdly, to know God's power. God has this incredible power. And fourthly, to know God's mercy. His mercy. He, he warned them ahead of time that these plagues were going to be going to be happening. Then he stopped each plague when Pharaoh relented. And of course, Pharaoh did what we all do from time to time. When, when God stopped the plague, then he hardened his heart and said, just kidding, I won't let the people go. And fifthly, to know God's salvation, God's salvation. The plagues were judgment for the Egyptians, but they were salvation for the Israelites. Today, we're going to look at the 10th plague, the 10th plague, and an event called the Passover, the Passover. The Passover was one of three major events we find in the book of Exodus. The Passover was the beginning of the great deliverance from Egypt. When you look at the nation of Israel, when they talked about their history, it always started in Egypt and their deliverance from Egypt. The other two major events, of course, are the crossing of the Red Sea, which we'll look at later, and the making of the covenant or the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Three great festivals to commemorate these three events have been celebrated by the Israelites for generations. We're going to look at three aspects of this particular event today. We're going to look at God's judgment. We're going to look at God's grace. And we're going to look at humans' response or our response to all of that. I'd like you to turn with me to Exodus 11, Exodus 11th chapter. And we'll read chapter 11 a little bit from chapter 12. And I want to read this because this is God's word. And we, I really feel like it's important that we read and follow God's word. It's on page 52 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. It'll also be on the projection. Exodus 11. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that the men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill. And all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. Worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. 
all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, God, you and all the people who follow you, after that I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without a defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also, bless me. We're going to start by talking about judgment. God's judgment. Now, we don't like to hear about judgment. In fact, many people today believe that God's judgments, which fills the pages of the Old Testament, is something that fades in the New Testament. Old Testament judgment, New Testament, good stuff. Okay? There's a common, common misunderstanding. The Old Testament is full of law, judgment, wrath of God, and angry, and an angry God. A lot of people think that. They think the New Testament is full of grace and love about the mild and meek Jesus who just loved everybody. However, as we've discovered, as we've studied Genesis and Exodus, the Old Testament is full of grace and love as well as judgment. 
The New Testament is also full of grace and love, but it also is full of judgment. talks about judgment. In fact, the entire New Testament is overshadowed by the certainty at the end of the book of the universal judgment that was set forth by Jesus himself. The New Testament provides powerful imagery of judgment. The sheep being separated from the goats, the righteous on the right hand of God ushered into God's presence, the unrighteous on the left hand ushered into judgment. The wheat and the tares, the harvest at the end of time, with the tares being burned up and the righteous invited into the presence of the Lord. The unrighteous condemned to eternal punishment and darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's all in the New Testament? Yeah, it's all in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus himself spoke more about hell than about heaven. Seriously? More about hell than heaven? Yes, he did. But realizing that hell was not created for people. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. So why did Jesus warn us? Because only when people see what could be our destination can we really appreciate what we're saved from. God's judgment is a reality. And the Egyptians, led by Pharaoh, were going to receive God's judgment. God had displayed his signs and wonders nine times to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And each time, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he said, no. He said, no. He hardened his heart. Now, some will ask, what about the Egyptian people? Did the Egyptian people deserve the same judgment as as Pharaoh? Wasn't this Pharaoh's doing? There's a lesson here. Maxie Dunham writes this in answer to this question. Certainly an objection might be raised to this last purpose that it was Pharaoh who sinned and not the Egyptian people. What did they have to do with this? It might be argued that they were innocent bystanders to the contest that swirled around them. But what does that say to us about social sin? Social sin. The Egyptians passively stood by and watched the enslavement in mistreatment of the Israelites. Did they not therefore share in the responsibility for Israel's oppression? We think about the German people and even the church standing by as Adolf Hitler and his circle of friends did the work of the Holocaust. The question is, isn't passivity or failure to stand up for justice a part of the sin that is actively committed? This certainly speaks, or ought to speak to us, about our involvement in social issues. Issues like abortion, boy, I tell you, that's been on the front burner everywhere. Roe v. Wade. Our involvement in social issues, justice, child abuse, slavery, prostitution, poverty. God's judgment was coming to the entire nation of Egypt, and it was going to come directly from God. The first nine plagues God used nature and natural secondary agencies. The 10th plague is attributed to God's direct hand. Verse 23 of chapter 12 speaks of the destroyer, the destroying angel, the angel of death. This was not demonic power. This was God's power. One thing we discover all throughout the Bible is that death Death is part of God's judgment on sin. And we see it in Genesis 2.17, and we see it here. One writer put it perhaps cruelly, and it sounds really harsh. 
every house in Egypt that night, there was either a dead lamb or a dead firstborn. Death. God's judgment is not a pretty picture. And we discover in this event or a picture or a pattern for our Christian faith journeys. How in the world can this be a picture of our faith journey? This is radical stuff. How can this be a picture of our event or, or faith journey? Israel is in bondage to Pharaoh. They're enslaved by Pharaoh, just like people are in bondage to sin and evil. There's a bondage, there's a slavery in which people are held, just like Israel was held in bondage and slavery in Egypt, so people are held in bondage to sin and evil. In John 8, 34, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. All of us are under bondage, have been slaves to sin, dead in our sins. But Jesus came, okay, this is why Jesus came. And he says in John 5.24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Ah, there's the good news. Crossed over from death to life. Death reigns, slavery. And because of what Jesus did, we cross from death to life. What does that mean? Cross from death to life. How does it happen? And what, what makes the difference? How did the Israelites cross over from certain death to life? Against this background of judgment, and it's important that we see the bad news of judgment, in contrast to that, we see God's grace. Number two, God's grace. We see some great parallels between the Passover and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. A lot of parallels between them. The Passover was to Israel what the crucifixion is to us. What do we discover? We discover provisions for God's grace. These provisions for God's grace come from God, not from us. For, and it started with a lamb sacrificed, a lamb sacrificed. In Exodus 12, 5, it describes this lamb. It says this lamb was without defect. It was a one-year-old lamb or goat, one lamb for each household. How do we connect that to our lives today? In John 1, 29, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming down to be baptized, and he said this, Look, the Lamb of God. What? It, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was a Lamb. In the Old Testament, it was a Lamb. In the New Testament, it was Jesus was the Lamb of God. It takes away or carries away. It removes the sin of the world. In Revelation 13, 8, John called Jesus the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. In other words, this was part of God's plan. God knew from before the creation of the world that Jesus was going to come and he was going to be slain. He was going to be called a lamb that was slain. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. Todd read this passage in our worship. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish 
or defect. Jesus was a lamb without blemish, defect. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was innocent. The lambs in Exodus had to die. They said, slaughter them at twilight. Why, Why did the lamb have to die? How else were they to obtain blood? Blood. Blood represents life. Blood is life. A life had to be taken. A lamb had to die so that they would not die. The lamb had to die so they would not die. The lamb was the substitute. The lamb was the one who died in their place so that their firstborn wouldn't die, but their firstborn would live. Jesus, our substitute, died so we would not have to die, but live. Substitute. It's called a substitutionary atonement. Atonement means paid for. And Jesus died in our place. He was our substitute, died so we didn't have to. That's what the Passover is a picture of. Substitutionary atonement. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. What is this stuff about blood? Some people object to the language of blood. It's not not a pleasant thing. It seems unpleasant. If you don't like the language, you're going to have to take it up with God. It's the language of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Even in our worship songs, we sing a worship song talking about the, the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus. The shedding of the blood, the taking of that life, that substitute is why we live today. God's grace. The lamb was sacrificed. That's the first part of God's grace. Now, there's a very important second part of this. And that, this second part of God's grace is the lamb's blood applied. The lamb's blood applied. Not only did the death of the lamb have to occur, the shedding of the blood, the blood had to be applied. It had to be put on the doorposts. Verse 7 says, Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Here we see elements of faith and obedience. Now, faith is kind of like, I don't, I don't understand this. It doesn't make sense. But by faith, they, they took that step and did what God told them to do. And the other part of, of faith was they put, had their cloak tucked in, the sandals on their feet, staff in their hand, they were ready to go. These are elements of expectation, elements of faith, expressions of faith. They obeyed. It was faith and obedience to God's word. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I'll pass over. The Passover. The grace of God is demonstrated in the fact that God provided the way of escape. God provided the way of escape. And nobody deserved it. Okay? It's important that we understand this is God's provision. It's his grace. Unmerited favor. God provided that. No one deserved it. Grace is God initiated. God initiated it. Grace is free. Grace is undeserved. It cannot be earned. It can only be accepted. God's grace was the blood. It protected, it cleansed, it substituted, 
and delivered them from God's judgment. What an incredible picture of God's grace. You contrast that with a judgment with God's grace. We can't earn grace. It can only be accepted. And here's the incredible mystery. God infused the blood on the doorposts. God infused the blood on the doorposts with the power to save. God infused the blood on the doorposts with the power to save. In the same way, God has endued the blood of Jesus, shed on the cross with the power to save. God, in essence, shed his own blood, Jesus' blood. And it has, he's attributed to that blood the power to save us from judgment. And no matter what sins we've committed, no matter what our background, no matter what we are, feel guilty for, no matter what we've done in our past or background, all can be forgiven. Why? Because God attributed to the blood of Jesus the power to forgive and to save. The blood of Jesus. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The gift is grace, but the blood must be applied. So what is our response? What's, what was our response and what is our response? What are people's response? When we learn this, we must accept God's way of escape and not try to create our own way. It's God's way. This is how God set it up. Many people presume on God's grace and say, you know, God's a loving God. Certainly, he would never send anyone to hell. God is a loving God. He's also a just God. Sin must be paid for, and God paid for it. All we need to do is accept his gift of payment. We must accept God's way through the blood sacrifice of Jesus, not try to make up our own way. God is a God of love, but he's not obliged to love anyone. He loves of his own free will. We deserve justice, but he gives love. The blood must be applied. Now, the Israelites could, could have said, Wow, this, is a, this looks like a great system. I believe in the blood. I, I think it'll work if I put it on my door. I'm sincere. They, they had sincere belief in the blood. But unless the blood was actually applied to the doorpost, their belief would not do any good. The blood had to be applied to the doorpost. It was God's way. Apply the blood. So how do we? How do we apply the blood? How do we apply the How is the blood to be applied? We may have known all these things before. We may have believed in the power of the blood, but never applied it. This is how we apply the blood. Now, you should listen very carefully. First of all, confession. Confession. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What is confession? Confession is to agree with God. Very simply, agreeing with God. To admit wrong, to admit 
the inability to save ourselves from God's judgment to agree. Say, I did it. I can't save myself. Confess, this is what I've done. This is who I've been. Confession. Step one. Step two is repentance. This is how we apply the blood. Repentance. Acts 3.19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Confession is agreeing it's wrong. Agree we've done it. Repentance is to turn around. Now turning around is to turn from sin to God. It's not a 45 degree turn. It's not a 360 degree turn. It's turning 180 degrees from sin to God. One of the biggest problems in the American church today is there's a lot of confession without repentance. Repentance is turning away and turning to. Critical that if we're going to apply the blood of Jesus Christ that we not only confess that we did wrong, but that we repent and turn from it. I know I'm sinning. I believe God will forgive me, but they never turn from sin or turn to God. I'm sorry, yes, but the only way one knows the sincerity of confession is to see true repentance turning to God. And third step, third step closely linked to that is obedience. Obedience. The Israelites expressed their faith by then obeying the voice of God. They obeyed the voice of God. In 1 John 1, 5 through 8, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. All sin. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. How do we know if the blood of Jesus has been applied in our life? Confession? Repentance and obedience. And the fourth step, the result is salvation. Salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. God's grace is extended. His forgiveness is extended. And we respond Acts 2.21 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God's judgment, not a pretty picture. God's grace, the blood shed. Our response, the blood applied. And a question I have for you is, have you ever responded to God's grace? Have you ever responded to God's grace? Because Our response determines our eternal destiny. John 1.12 says, To all who have received him, to those who have believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you've never accepted God's grace his way, or you're just not sure if you have, 
I want to pray with you today. I'm going to pray a prayer that takes that step of obedience. And I'd like us to all just bow our heads. And you can pray this prayer silently as I pray it aloud. And if you have never received Jesus in this way, you can right now. Lord Jesus, I need you. I confess that I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I repent and ask for you to forgive me of my sins. In obedience to you, I open my life and invite you to take charge. Come into my life and make me who you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we pray right now that you would speak to each and every one, that no one would leave here with any shadow of a doubt that they have you as their Savior and Lord, that we would know and be able to know for sure that we have applied the blood of Jesus. In Jesus' name. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship and the power of the Holy Spirit be and abide with all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. God bless.